0: Suffering is one of those questions um, that I get a lot from both believers and non-believers alike. Questions like this. Why does suffering exist? If God is good, why is there evil? On a personal level, it happens when we ask these questions, like, why did my friend commit suicide? Why does my aunt have cancer Why did we lose the baby? And I'm going to do my best to answer these questions from the perspective of a friend. It would be easy for me to answer these questions from the perspective of an an apologist or a philosopher. And while I will get into some of that tonight, I just want to give you some of the basic tools to be able to walk through this as someone who is older than you and therefore probably has suffered more than you have in your life. So, um, we have to realize, first of all, that we have a God that has endured pain too. We have a God who has endured pain too. We are not left alone in our sufferings. Christ actually asked that his Father would remove suffering from him, but the Father did not. So turn with me to John 19. We're going to see where this suffering culminates. At the cross. So John 19. John is in the New Testament. It's the fourth book. It's the last gospel. We're going to start in verse 16. So 19, verse 16. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is aromatic, in aromatic is called called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with two others, one on either side, Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription For the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. But Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic, but the tunic was seamless. Woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which said, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold, your son. And he said to his disciple, Behold, your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head. And gave up his spirit. Let's pray. Father God, there is not much comfort when we suffer. You know this. And the reason you know this is because you entered into our suffering. You are a God who saw our condition, and you saw that the, the way to overcome our condition was to suffer alongside us and then to ultimately suffer in our place to die the death that we deserve, to receive the punishment that we, that we justly owe. But you decided to take that on. You decided to suffer in our stead so that we could no longer suffer, so that we could have hope. And so, Lord, as we look at this large breaststroke of the Christian faith known as suffering tonight, may we see it in the midst of the whole story, in the whole picture, And how we can apply that to our lives and to the lives of those we love in the world. In your son's name, amen. I want to remind you of the large brush strokes that we've covered for the past couple months. Because again, this is the 2020 series. So the question we're kind of asking as a whole is how do we see reality clearly? How do we see it clearly? How do we make sure that as we approach decisions in our life... We are approaching them with clear vision and we're not missing some key component to the decisions that we make so that we can best glorify God and God can in turn use us to magnify his name on the earth so that his name can spread. And again, his glory can rain down and people can live rightly and love rightly and be in harmony the way they were designed to, right? You are God's change agents on this planet. And if you don't understand how to be a change agent, then the Great Commission and the Great Commandment seem useless. So we want to make those big, right? So let me remind you of the big brushstrokes that we've kind of covered these last couple months. The first brushstroke that we covered is that truth actually exists. Truth is a real thing. And secondly, truth is knowable. Okay? There is truth and we can know it. That was the first major brushstroke. And the reason we have to cover that is because if you don't believe that we can know anything about truth, then any conversation is really just you know, jabber. It's meaningless, right? But we look at the philosophy behind it. We look at what Christ had to say about it. And we realize that, yeah, there is truth and we can know it. Secondly, it's just simple math, right? There is truth just based on population proportions and the number of people that believe different things and believe contradictory things, we know that the vast majority of the world is wrong. Whether we're in that camp or not is a different discussion. But if you just look at the statistics, the majority of the world is wrong when it comes to truth. So you need to know those two big brushstrokes when it comes to reality. Reality. The third brushstroke, which I think is so pivotal, and I hope you realize is pivotal, is that you are not the main character of the story. Okay? You are not the center of the universe, as Caperna- Copernicus put it, right? Like, you're not. God is. God is the main character of the story. He is the protagonist to reality. So where does that put us? That puts us in the role of antagonist, So the villain, yet the object of affection of the protagonist. And that's that tension that we see in scripture that starts in Genesis 3 and moves down. And we saw that played out, this idea of God as protagonist, us as antagonist. And object of his affection played out in Hosea as we spent two weeks looking at the book of Hosea and seeing how that large brushstroke plays into Scripture. The uh, last major brushstroke that we saw was this idea of covenant. Covenant is everywhere in Scripture. Covenant is fulfilled in the scripture that we just read about, is established in the creation event. And it's played out at various events in the Old Testament. And then we see it immediately talked about in Acts and the Epistles and Revelation all point back to the fulfilled covenant of Jesus on the cross in this chapter. Covenant is everywhere. Again, covenant is to Bible as like the force is to Star Wars. If you don't understand it, you're going to miss the whole point of the story. And those are the major brushstrokes that we talked about. The last brush stroke that I really think kind of covers it all, that gives it its color that you say, my kids play with this um, magic coloring sheet. Have you seen these? It's got one pen, but when you put it on the page, it makes a bunch of color. It, does, it can make one pen, like 12 colors, right? Blows your mind. We didn't have that when I was a kid growing up. Like crazy stuff, right? Okay? And really, when you understand covenant, when you understand suffering, it really is you, you begin to see the picture in color. And so that's why this is so important. So I'm going to hit this three ways tonight. The first category I'm going to address it in is, how do I address suffering to the Christian who is not in the midst of pain? The second category I'm going to cover tonight is, how do I address suffering to the unbeliever who is in the midst of pain? And the third category I'm going to address tonight is, how do I address the skeptic who is mocking? So those are the three kind of categories I'm going to hit tonight. So, the first category is to the Christian in this moment. To the Christian in this moment. It's your first fill in the blank. To the Christian in this moment. I say in this moment because at least from what I'm aware of, none of you are suffering some traumatic event right now. Or at least some outside force traumatic event right now. Some of you are suffering traumatic events, but those are your own doing. But it's not something that's just kind of shocked your life, right? So you're in a spot where you can rationally deal with suffering. Because when you're in the midst of suffering and emotions are running high, you just don't think clearly. So I'm going to hopefully give you some just honest, blunt, hard truths tonight. That when suffering comes, I hope that you will take into it. Okay? So that's what I want to do. First thing I want to do is I want to give you some mortality statistics. The purpose I'll reveal in a moment. So at the beginning of the 20th century, or the 1900s, for those of you that don't understand history, six out of nine, six to nine women out of a 1,000 would die during childbirth. Okay? Of the 1,000 babies born, 100 would die by their second birthday. It's one out of every 10. By 1997... So less than 100 years, that number had dropped to um, seven babies dying out of every 100. So we go from one-tenth, so 10% to uh, drastically less, almost 1%, less than 1%. And the number of women dying dropped to .01 out of every 1,000. So think about it. We live in a great time just mortality-wise, right? Put that. Put this in perspective. With the number of you in this room, technically, if we lived in the turn of the century, the turn of the 20th century, two or three of you would not be here. Okay? Well, what about the sem- 17th century before medicine really took off? This was shocking. In the 17th century, a whopping 36% of children would die before the age of 16. Sorry, not 16. Would die before the age of six. 36% would die before the age of six. And another 24% would die between their seventh birthday and their 16th birthday. So if you're good at math, or even if you're not good at math like me, you realize that 60 out of every 100 people would die before their 16th birthday. So look to your left, look to your right. If you're on the edge, just keep two other people in view of you, right? And of the three of you, two of you shouldn't be here if it was the 17th century. Okay? Get out of here. Just that kidding. just gives you an idea of these statistics. And the reason is, we kind of talked about it out there, death is a major cause of suffering. And today, we don't experience it the way that most of history <clears throat> dealt with death. We don't, and that's a good thing. Think about it. Same goes for hunger. Okay? As to people who have died of famine in history, you can look this up on ourworldanddata.com. That's a fun website if you're a data nerd. In 1870, over 20 million people died of famine over that decade. 20 million. Count to 20 million in your spare time. It'll take you a couple years. Comparatively, in the last 15 years, only 255,000 people have died of famine and starvation. Now, yes, I agree with you. That's still far too many, right? But compare the numbers. We live in a time where most of you don't think about your next meal in the sense of like, am I going to have a next meal? You think about your next meal. But it's like, (laughs) okay, what do we got in the fridge? What do I need to swing by the store? What can I pop in the oven? What number do I get from the restaurant? Like, we don't even talk about food in food terms. We're talking about them in numbers, right? When we go to restaurants, I'll take the number two with a side. And that's just how we roll. Most of you don't know real hunger. You don't. And this is how we live. Compared to the majority of history, we worry about very little. We will have food tomorrow and probably the rest of the week. You get to go to school and learn about the world. Most people haven't done that in history. Like the vast majority have not done that. If you think about this, the vast majority of people weren't alive to do that, right? By your age. The mode of transportation that you are currently in has seatbelts, bumpers, and airbags. The mode of transportation on the majority of history, if you ticked it off, would bite you. (laughs) Right? Like, we live in one of the, like, best times ever in the history of mankind. Yet, statistically, compared to older generations, we are a very ungrateful people. Compared to older generations, statistically, when they fill out these surveys, we are the least grateful generation, and yet we have the most. Mm -hmm. To your next one in the blank. Our comfort has led to a false sense of the way the world works. Our comfort has led to a false sense of the way the world works. This is one of the reasons... The lies we talked about in the previous weeks are so prevalent. The only reason we talk about those three lies is because of the culture we live in. The only reason we talk about emotional trauma is because bodily trauma is a rarity compared to the things of the past. The only reason we talk about that we're prone to trust our emotions is because we don't live on the cusp of life and death daily. The reason people believe life is a fight between good and evil is because they know that the world is broken but they think they are not the cause. We have the time to come up and live in these lies. Our comfort has led to a false sense of the way the world works. So, for the Christian who suffers, which is who I'm speaking to, I want you to remember this it's your next fill in the blank. God promised you suffering, He promised you suffering. He didn't promise you a Ferrari. He didn't promise you a happy marriage. He didn't promise you a pug. I wish he did, but he didn't. He didn't promise you great hair. He didn't promise you hair past like your 20th birthday, right? (laughs) Like, hey, sorry. But But he did promise you suffering. If you look at 1 Peter 4, 12 and 16, you can write this down, you have to turn to it now. First 1 Peter 4, 12 through 16. Beloved, do not be surprised. Let me repeat it. Do not be surprised. I'll put a different inflection on it just in case you missed it. Do not be surprised okay, at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. I'm convinced, because back in those days, they had fiery trials every day, right? Like people were walking around do you believe in Caesar as God or do you believe in Jesus as God? And if you said Jesus, they cut off your head, right? So I'm convinced almost that he's talking to us here, right? Though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. That's weird. That you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a muddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. This is your next fill in the blank. Suffering should not shake us, because we should expect it. But we are too busy insulating ourselves and making sure we are safe rather than being willing to step into the suffering of others. Suffering should not shake us because we should expect it. But We are too busy insulating ourselves and making sure we are safe rather than being willing to step into the suffering of others. This is the short answer. Okay? I'm giving you the short one. If you want to talk about evil, if you want to talk about suffering from a Christian perspective, and you want like deep theological, philosophical, apologetic argumentation, I'll take you out to coffee or ice cream or dinner or something or lunch. Just let me know we can do that. Or Jay's well-versed at it too, except I'll buy your meal if I take you out. You have to buy Jay this meal. That's true. He's not a cheap date either. Asked Taylor. So, Amen. Um, so, The question on suffering when posed to the Christian should be an easy one to answer. That's weird. That's what I'm saying. The covenant between God and man has been broken, and it has affected the whole world. That's our answer to why suffering exists. Natural disasters, disease, these were brought on by the fall, and we know the world is broken at our very core. We know we are broken at our very core as we struggle with the same sins over and over and over again, sometimes within the same day. I should not have done that. I did it again. But for the Christian, the answer to suffering comes from a suffering servant that we read about in John. When Christ said it is finished, he spoke of the beginnings of making all things right. It is that moment When he said, it is finished, I think about it much like that moment when um, Aragon and uh, Legolas and Gimli are in the forest and, you know, Gandalf the White appears and they say, why are you here? And he says, to turn the tide. It is that moment where he says it is finished, where literally crazy stuff happened on earth and everyone was like, okay, the curtains ripped, there's an earthquake, there's a blood moon, something big has happened to where I was reading in Mark with my kids last night where the centurion at the bottom of the cross goes, this man surely was the son of God. where any pagan can recognize him. But when he said it's finished, he spoke of the beginnings of making all things right. You can now have a right relationship with the Father that will culminate in an eternity of good and beautiful life without suffering. Revelation 21 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things, no, this other, former things, the former things have passed away. But you can ask this question too. Why does he give us suffering in the midst of the broken world? Turn with me, this one I do want you to turn with me, turn to Romans 5, 3 through 5. If you have a Bible, underline this one. Memorize this one. I want this to be the reminder in your heart when suffering hits. This is one of those goals, this is what I call an anchor verse, right? The storm has come. This is the word of God that I am anchored to. This is an anchor verse. Not only that, but we rejoice in the sufferings. We're going to talk about that later, but that's like a crazy concept. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That's why he gives us suffering. To magnify him. What do we do with the non-believer in pain? A friend who is not a follower of Jesus and they have suffered some tragedy. Law Since everyone. The Bible tells us that. It'll strike the just and the unjust alike. So what do you do when your unbelieving friend faces it? They will ask the same question everyone does: Why does this happen? And the reason they ask this question is because at their very core, they know that death is wrong. I saw a great tweet this week. It said this: Death might be normal, but it shouldn't be natural. Your next fill in the blank: Death might be normal, but it shouldn't be natural. Death is due to the fall. And I believe every person on this planet knows that in their pain. Something is not right. So what does the Father give us in the midst of the suffering? What does the Father give us in the midst of suffering? Well, if you paid attention to Romans 5, you know that God gives us His Spirit. He promised to be with us in the midst of suffering. God has not abandoned us. And I think that demonstrates how we should interact with our non-believing friends. This demonstrates how we should interact with our non-believing friends. Your next fill in the blank. It is three words. I'm going to give you all three. I have you fill them in by yourself because I think this is so important. We've done a whole series on this in the past, and that is simply this be with them. Be with them. Sometimes it's going over to a house, sitting on a back porch, sipping tea. And There's so much pain and emotions that are running hard from the trauma. You can't really say anything, right? Small talk at that moment is really cheap. And all you can do is sit there. It sucks. I'll tell you that. It sucks. You can sit there and be with them. that's what they need in that moment. I think that's what we all need in those moments. We don't need poetry. We don't need flattering words. Sometimes we just need someone to be with us. And if for some reason, since they know you're a Christian, they find the courage to say, why did God allow this to happen? Which, this happens. Atheists become potential Christians in the midst of trauma, let me tell you. They'll ask tons of God questions all of a sudden. Why did God allow this to happen? I want to give you freedom here. To your next one in the blank. You are free to say the words, I don't know. You are free to say the words, I don't know. So if you are ever in the midst of trauma with a friend, you don't have to have all the answers. Honestly, you don't have to have a answer. Because you're not God. I don't know why... X's little brother passed away. I don't know why my mom my mom is leaving her home. I don't know why X, right? And that's okay for you to say. Right after a tragedy, don't give them an apologetic on evil. Don't try to philosophize or theologize the situation with a non-believer. You can say things like this. When there is tragedy in my life, I always want someone to be with me, so I'll be with you. You can say things like that. Remind them that you'll be with them. To talk, to cry with. In this culture, if you have a phone, text them daily. If it's been really close to the event, maybe a couple times. Right, and you don't gotta say a lot. You just gotta say, "Thinking of you, you. I prayed for you. Today, that you have more peace today than you did yesterday. You are loved. You're not alone. You're allowed to say those things. And when the when you can feel the Lord tugging on your heart, offer them hope. You can invite them to church, to youth group, to small groups, to Bible study, and let them know that the peace they are looking for you think is there. You're allowed to offer that. And they might scoff Some will, but others are looking for peace. And you have the answer. For most converts, it takes a moment to realize that the world is broken before they seek a way to fix it. You talked about it out there, right? Most people, when it comes to suffering, and when it comes to the brokenness of the world, we desensitize it, we trivialize it, and we mock it. But when that, when crap hits the fan, you suddenly got to deal with the fact that this seems broken. You know the healer. You know the redeemer. You know the one who will make all things right on the last day. You have the only answer to it. And this is your next fill in the blank. You just must be present in the lives of others. If you will extend peace, you just must be present in the lives of others if you will extend peace. And you must be present in their lives before a tragedy for you to do that. And a tragedy will come. I hate that. I hated writing that as an introvert. Right? I just. Can I just get a book? Right? Books don't have tragedies unless it's written in it. But it is a call for me to step out of my comfort zone and get to know people so that when tragedy hits, I can, bring, I can be a vessel for Jesus to bring healing. You must be present. On a side note, and I could spend a whole time on this, some of the best apologetics for the Christian faith I have ever seen is when Christians face tragedy and their non-Christian friends are around to see them walk through it. This is your next fill in the blank. God will use suffering in your own life to bring life to others. Just as God used suffering in the life of his son to bring life to his elect. Lastly, to the skeptics who mock, man, I'm sorry. How can you believe in a God with all the evil in the world? That's the question they ask. How can you believe in a God with all the evil in the world? This is common complaint by militant atheists. And this is where a decent apologetic comes in. You need to know something. But this is the thing you need to know, okay? It's your next one in the blank after three to those skeptics is this. Evil is not the problem of Christianity. Evil is a problem of all worldviews. Everybody's got to deal with this. You're not stuck in some corner where you got to deal with it alone as the Christian. Think about it, for the Christian the response to evil is easy. World is broken, man is fallen, but God has already begun to make things right. Notice how this conversation can go for someone who is a mocking skeptic. This is what they can say. How can you believe in a God with all the evil in the world? My response always to this is this. So you believe in evil? Notice how it immediately puts the ball back in their court. Right? And notice the problem the atheist is in. If they say no, which most will not, then I respond with, then what are you complaining about? Something that you don't think exists. If they say yes, they do believe in evil, they have to ground it. They have to explain what makes something evil and what makes something good. Think of it this way. Most atheists are materialists. Materialists. That means they think only things exist that have matter on them, that are material, matter, right? Guess what's not matter? Evil. You gotta ground that, buddy. So they have to ground it in either sociology or evolutionary biology, and both are very problematic. A great follow-up question, if they say, yes, evil does exist, is this. What makes something evil and what makes something good for you? Again, you don't have to be sarcastic. You can be inquisitive. For you, what makes something evil and what makes something good? If it's based on the majority, and I've gotten into this plenty of times. Well, it's just what the majority of people think. This is a fun rabbit trail to go down in history. Okay, This is a question I ask. Has slavery or racism always been wrong? Because if what is good and evil is based on the majority then we cannot condemn the past. And does that make the anti-slavery movements like the Underground Railroad evil, since they were in the clear minority? If, if morality is just based on public opinion, and that's just one issue. I'm not going to go down that rabbit trail anymore. Okay, Another one you might get is that we are evolving towards a more perfect society. Gosh, we get this nowadays. People that use... You, utopian language. This is one of their favorite things. They're just not thinking it through. Again, I ask the question, well, what makes something perfect? By what standard? Most of the time in evolution, things deteriorate. They don't get better. The genome study has proven this. If you know anything about evolutionary biology, the vast majority of evolution is deterioration, not improvement. If that's the fact... How do we know that a moral change in society is not a deterioration instead of an improvement? By what standard? The problem for the atheists is that they have no standard on which to ground morality. They don't. Yet I think they know in the core of their being that there is a morality. They know it. When someone hits their mother, they think it's unjust. And we do too. We just can ground it. Man is fallen. The world is broken, but we know the solution. We know, as Jesus says, it is finished. You see, the last brushstroke to the Christian story is one of suffering. It's a big brushstroke. Flip it on the back side of your card. I, I kind of painted it out for you. It's in bold under number seven. This is the major brushstrokes, okay? God created a perfect world. God created a covenant with man. Man broke the covenant and brought about suffering. God set into place a rescue operation for suffering by sending his son to suffer in our place so that we may suffer no more. Be in a renewed covenant with God and forever live in the perfect world to come. That is the great overview, the 2020 look at history. Those are the major brushstrokes and that's how they play together. The mocking skeptic might not like our answer to the problem of suffering, but at least we got one. You cannot like it all day, but we got an answer. But it's an answer that fits the puzzle pieces to reality, I think. And I think it's the only answer that fits the puzzle pieces to reality, and they cannot provide one. So we're going to dive into this more in Transformation Groups.